podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. You're back. It's the TMBA pod. Today's interview is designed to inspire you to do something special in your business, to stick to your guns. And today's guest is someone who encapsulates something we've been droning on about on this podcast for years. These companies, they don't necessarily want all this extra work. They want results. And we handle the technology. We handle this part of their business, and we just deliver results. That's right. You don't need to fake it till you make it. You don't need to have fancy, slick pitches. You don't even need to have a big idea. You just need to solve other people's problems. Today's guest is Kean Graham, the founder of Monetize More. He was actually a keynote speaker at DCBKK 2018. And we're going to take this conversation in some fresh directions today. Kean's company is 100 people strong, and he leans into location independence. That is, it is a core value in his company. Monetize More has no office. Kean is constantly traveling the world, enjoying different locations as he runs this truly remarkable company. Today on the show, we're going to dig into the inside story about how this all got started and some of the strategies Kian used to build the business, and some of which are somewhat controversial. Poaching is a really important tactic for getting top-level talent. You know, that's one of the biggest things for ramping up a company is getting the best talent. And location-independent businesses have that competitive advantage of offering location and schedule freedom. You got to poach. So that's just a taster. Stick around for this one. What do you say we jump in? So I started this conversation by asking Kian to describe Monetize More's core product. Our product is very abstract. So take a website that you go on on a regular basis that has free content. So let's use buzzfeed.com. You go on there, everything's free, and then the way they monetize their traffic is by having banner ads on the page. So when you go on the page, and whenever you see that ad, BuzzFeed earns revenues. Whenever you click on that ad, BuzzFeed earns even more revenues. When you buy something after clicking that ad, BuzzFeed earns even more revenues. So what our technology does is runs an auction of all these different advertisers that want to be in that ad placement in BuzzFeed. So rather than, say, Google AdSense being on BuzzFeed and Google having a monopoly over that ad placement, we create this auction where all these different alternatives compete for that ad placement to pay more for that particular ad impression. And that's how the revenues go up. Because if you think about it in an auction, right? 
If there's one bidder in this auction, they could bid whatever they want. So say they bid $1 with one bidder. All of a sudden you have 20 bidders, you'll have much higher bids at the end and that is how the revenues kind of go up using our proprietary technology. How does AdSense let you do this? Because my impression as a publisher would be, okay, you install AdSense on your site and AdSense is supposed to be doing that, right? They're supposed to be going out and getting bidders to bid for that space on your site and serving you the best ad. So how come Google is going to let you guys get involved in their product? Google sees this as a inevitable part of the market. And publishers are welcome to run other ad placements on the page. So Google kind of doubled down on this inevitable market factor of there being competition within these publisher pages. And what they did was they bought a company called DoubleClick, and they have this ad server. And an ad server is like the brain of the ad inventory. Your BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed sells an ad, ad placements to Ford directly, then you can run that via an ad server. So Google bought DoubleClick. They own this ad server that's a market leader in, in the ad industry today. And they essentially control that auction that some of the largest publishers that monetize via ad revenues, they use DoubleClick for publishers. That is the number one. Nothing's going to beat it for a long time. And Google kind of strategically wanted to control the ad server market, which they have been for a long time. And they have been able to maintain market leader status despite this inevitable kind of push from all these different competitors and market forces. Do you need AdSense? Like, why don't you just offer your own platform to your customers? While there are a lot of other ad networks out there that provide solid demand, Google is still the number one source of demand. That's where most of the advertisers go. That's for publishers. That's the one that earns the highest, what you call RPM, revenue per thousand ad impressions. So that's kind of like a metric where you gauge what the performance is of your ad inventory. And Google performs the best in terms of international audience. And then there's other ones like AppNexus and OpenX and Facebook, Amazon out there as well. And you want Google at the center because that's the best source of the highest demand. But the way to get the most out of your ad inventory and the, to monetize your traffic the most is to have an auction where you have everyone compete. You want the most competitive auction as possible, and that's to have as many advertisers compete for your ad inventory. And that's, if you're missing Google, then you're missing a huge portion of the advertisers. So that's why you want Google in there as well. Kian, can you walk us back eight years to the germ of this idea? What was the spark? What was the first moment where you spotted an opportunity? Well, I was actually laid off. I was laid off from my job and I took off on a plane to South America five days later. I saw that as an opportunity. So boom, I'm on a plane, had the time of my life. And funny enough, when I came back to Canada with this inspiration, this fire to start my business, I you know, learned how to make websites, do affiliate marketing, come up with an idea. And I used my old employer 
as a case study. How can I increase their revenues in a measurable way? And I looked at their biggest source of revenue, which was Google AdSense. I was like, man, they only have one revenue source. Google has a monopoly over their ad inventory, and it's not even that targeted. I can increase that. If you have the same supply being the traffic, and you increase the demand by having Google compete against all these different demand sources, I can increase the price. And they have hundreds of millions of ad impressions, so I can increase the revenues in a big way. So what I did was I had that idea, came up with a business plan, presented it to them, and they're like, well, we'd like to try it out, but we can't really afford to hire you. We're still laying people off. I said, that's fine. How would I charge you a percentage of the increase in ad revenues? And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. That was the first client on month two when I started the business. So then I went into mad scientist mode, tried all these different ad optimization techniques. I was a pioneer in this industry where I didn't even know if I had competitors at the time. And the revenues went up and up and up and eventually made them additional millions and completely changed the trajectory of their business and had an incredible testimonial to start. How are you able to do this given that you didn't have technical skills? Am I assuming correctly that you can't write code? Yep, you are. So I have a business background. I was able to kind of piece some things together by either learning some kind of simple coding skills or hiring developers to kind of piece it together. So you're just duct taping this thing together in the early days. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was in that hustle mode where you just kind of make things work and you just drive towards results. So it's not uncommon in the early stage of a business to be throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. But one of the things that I think Kean did really well is he wasn't walking into the room and trying to make a great pitch or trying to be the smartest person in the room or faking it until he made it. At the end of the day, it all comes down to one thing. Like these companies, they don't necessarily want all this extra work. They want results. And that's exactly what we brought in. We handle the technology we handle this part of their business, and we just deliver results. What was your uh, professional experience before this? Like, How long did you have a job, and what was it? So right after I graduated in business, I got this job with an online classified in Canada. It's like the Craigslist of Canada. It's the third largest one in Canada right now, and I was their first marketing hire. Their team was really small. It was bought by a newspaper about six months before I was hired. And the team was only about four or five people at the time. So it was very entrepreneurial. My boss was an old Southern boy from Georgia. And he was the type of guy that runs things on the seat of his pants. And he essentially allowed me to be an entrepreneur within a funded company. So that was really my launching pad because I would come up with these, you know, harebrained ideas of how to increase the traffic for these online classifieds. And he's just like, okay, go for it. See if it works. And if it works, let's just apply it to all the different city sites that we have. So for example, one of the things that I came up with was garage sale signs, right? You see them all over the place. And it would literally say, garage sale, when 24-7, where, use vancouver.com. And we put signs up in a city 
We put thousands of signs overnight. And people would wake up and they're like, what the heck is this? All these signs here. And they go on the site. They check it out. They talk about it with their colleagues at work. And that would literally launch sites. Like we would get tens of thousands of unique users a day. And it would literally launch site. And the funny part is the cities that the launches went the best win were the ones that had the officials, like the, the municipal officials that were lazy enough where they wouldn't take the signs down. Like they would stay up for months, sometimes <laughs> even years. So they would stay there as this like, you know, kind of free advertising for sometimes months. And it would eventually kind of catch on. And then you get that positive type of viral effect. That was one of our most successful marketing campaigns. And it was like guerrilla marketing to a T. Can you remember the conversation when you got laid off? What was that like? Yeah, I can totally remember it. Uh, it was very surprising. It was with uh, a good friend of mine as well. I convinced him to join the company about two months before. And it was funny because the last day we had this idea to put Google AdSense ads on more pages because they would only do direct sales ads. And then whenever they couldn't sell a space, there would be nothing. It would be unmonetized. So we're like, well, why don't we put Google AdSense behind it? And they're like, yeah, make us more revenues because this was during the recession and the company was struggling at the time. So we were coming up with ways like, okay, let's make revenue. So our very last day, we spent all day putting Google AdSense ads up there and it made them a heck of a lot more uh, revenues. And we stayed in late and they're like, okay, are you done with the Google AdSense ads? Okay, we have a meeting now. And we went in for the meeting and that's where we got laid off. One thing I remember in particular from the head of online media, he says this was before Facebook, you know, when Facebook was having the monetization problems. And he said, yeah, we don't know if this whole online thing is going to work out. I mean, look at Facebook. They can't even monetize. Who knows even if they're going to make it? And we all know what happened there. What year was it? That was at the beginning of 2009. I was 23. And now you are? I'm 33 now. What is going through your mind on the way home? It was a little bit easier because I got laid off with one of my good friends. So we're both walking and we're roommates at the time too. So we're both walking home completely surprised. Next stop is the liquor store. And we both buy a case of beer each because we were actually planning to go out that night. It was Australia Day. And his girlfriend, you know, she grew up in Australia. So we're planning to have this big celebration, Australia Day. You're in Vancouver, Canada? This is in Victoria. Victoria, Canada. Right beside Vancouver. So we show up at the apartment. We're like, yeah, we got some bad news. We got laid off. But we're still going to enjoy tonight. You know, forget about it, that whole thing. And I remember at the party, we have some Argentinian friends. And they're just like, why don't you go to South America? I remember waking up the next morning and being like super happy, big smile on my face. I'm like, yep, I'm doing this. And I booked the flight that day. I left a few days later. And it was one of the best decisions of my life. That freedom of being able to travel where you want, to see all these new cultures, to explore the world. To be career ambitious and travel the world would be 
uh, dream come true. What an incredible lifestyle. Today's show is sponsored by Ahrefs. I know many of you love and use Ahrefs. And for those of you listening right now, we got a special offer for you today. So stick around. If you don't know, Ahrefs is the number one go-to tool for optimizing SEO traffic results because of their enormous backlinks index. I would have killed for something like this 10 years ago when I was getting started in SEO. But Ahrefs is a whole lot more sophisticated and comprehensive than that. It's actually a full suite of SEO tools, sort of like a Swiss army knife of SEO. So whether you need to run a technical site audit, do competitor research, or identify high-value keyword opportunities, Ahrefs does it all. So if you want to rank higher in Google and send your search traffic through the roof, go check out Ahrefs today. It's at www.ahrefs.com. They run a seven-day trial for just $7. So you could sign up for Ahrefs and see what this enormously comprehensive tool can do for just seven bucks. And here's what's better. For one listener of today's episode, they're offering a free light annual account worth nearly $1,000. All you need to do is tweet at Ahrefs and at Tropical MBA, letting us know why you deserve to win. And big ups to Ahrefs for that generous offer and for sponsoring today's show. Fill us in on where you're at right now, by the way. Like I can see like this big tan curtain behind you. What's going on? So I'm in a hotel in Xi'an, China, which is pretty much smack dab right in the middle of China. It's famous for the Terracotta Warriors. They have this exhibit that was discovered 40 years ago by this farmer that was digging a well and clunk he finds this like kind of metallic thing and it turns out to be this statue that you know survived hundreds of years and it became one of the most coveted uh, exhibits in the world and it kind of revealed a rich history within one of the dynasties in China so we were checking that out today and it's part of my regular lifestyle i travel 12 months of the year while running this business and it's you know, the lifestyle that I've always dreamed of having. Yeah, you're legit doing this, man. And there must be people who you at least read about naysaying the possibility of what you're doing. I mean, you're a CEO of a hundred plus person company and you're checking out Terracotta Warriors on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah. What's your reaction when you read stuff online or hear people naysay that kind of thing? People have their own limited beliefs. I mean, this lifestyle isn't for everyone. I think I'm a lot different than other people. And part of that is probably because of my childhood. I grew up in a tiny little town in the Canadian Rockies called Golden, BC. And my parents have a bed and breakfast, like on a mountain, in the forest, like our neighbor is a bear. And we were off the grid for five years. We literally got power from solar power. So there would be nights where we would run out of power and I'd have to do homework under candlelight. It was very unorthodox. And I think what it developed in me as I became older was that I can rough it when things get tough. I think uh, having an unorthodox type of uh, childhood really kind of enables more of a lifestyle that I have. Because I find I hang out with a lot of entrepreneurs thanks to the Dynamite Circle. And 
while we all have different kind of lifestyles are very unorthodox in terms of like working and traveling, I think it's kind of rare that I run this business and move as much as I do. How did that affect you socially growing up? I was going into university. So I went to the University of Victoria, you know, a city of 330,000 people. And it was a big city for me because I came from a a town of 4,000 people. You know, it was a big kind of change for me. I went from being an introvert in high school to becoming an extrovert and interested and curious in people in university because I kind of met people that I found more interesting. But I would definitely have some weird quirks that came from this lifestyle. For example, one thing that you'll learn from being off the grid and on solar power is you learn the appliances that take a lot of power. A toaster takes a crazy amount of power. A toaster that we had would take about the same amount of power that a big TV would take being on for five hours. So having toast was like a luxury for me. It sounds like you had a confidence maybe that a lot of kids that age don't have. Yeah. My parents are very accepting and I've never had the problem of, oh, you shouldn't study this in university because that won't lead you towards a prestigious job. Especially my mom. She's very accepting. She's from Spain. She is a very kind of natural kind of personality. She is who she is, no filter, that type of thing. So I think that upbringing allowed me to have the confidence to be who I am and to have very little type of hesitation of adjusting towards whatever society or culture deems appropriate. A lot of people who are happy tend to be their natural self. And a lot of people who are, you know, they tend to have depression issues, especially in the workplace. They are forced to be someone else that they aren't. And that's something that I've seen, you know, through friends or other people. And it's something that I look at in our own workplace. Are people able to be their true natural self? I'm sure there's times you feel like that too, where you're like, uh, this sucks, you know, or the last few months really sucked for me having to do X, Y, Z instead of what I really truly want to be doing. Totally. One particular aspect where I find that relevant is company politics. You know, it's always been a big purpose, like endeavors to make sure that my company is not politically driven. However, when you have external partnerships, and you deal with other clients, politics come into play. That's where it's unnatural for me. And I can kind of run into some issues where like, oh, man, this sucks. I don't like working through this. So that's one where I kind of have to compromise because sometimes that's the nature of business. Take me back to 2009 briefly. Your fly back home, you rock back up to your former boss's office and you say, here's what I want to do for you. I'm only going to take a cut of the upside. And it takes off like wildfire. Does it get awkward that you're now a creator of so much of the success of this company? It's an interesting dynamic. So to kind of take you through the story, as their revenues were going up in the, you know, the first few months, they were skeptical. They're just like, oh, just a fluke. It just kind of went up, could have been market trends, whatever. But then it kind of went up and up and up. And by the time 
their revenue has increased by over 50%. They're like, okay, there's something to this. They started getting excited, you know, and it just kept on going up and up. I was able to increase their revenues by over 350%. And it gets interesting because there is a dynamic where there's this outside party that is clearly increasing the ad revenues. However, they're in this corporate company where they want to take credit. So there's a little bit of a dance there of giving credit and when to take credit, when not to, you know, patting them on the back because when you're working for these corporate companies and you have these players, their biggest interest isn't necessarily the company's interest, the profits and the revenues. It's they want to look good to their superior. When did monetize more become a real thing in your mind? There was kind of two crucial points. There was our first success story. Which we've just heard about. And then there was, I needed to prove that this could work for another website. So the next site that we did it for was another online classified in the US called PennySaverUSA.com. They were willing to take a risk on us because there was a bunch of other publishers that were like, well, it could have been a fluke. You never know. Different traffic, different situation. But they took a risk on us. And I was able to increase their revenues by over 250%. And that's when I was like, okay, it isn't a fluke. It works for other sites with other kind of country traffic. And this can be applied to websites around the world. So that was a big milestone. And then I would say it was a real thing once I started hiring a team, which happened after three years of it just being me. And we hired full-time people. We had our first two full-time hires in the Philippines. When you say we, did you mean you? But you're now you're talking about the company? Yeah. It kind of brings back to that communication strategy because I ingrained it in my head that I'm going to say we from now on, no matter what, rather than what I would say was a mistake saying I for the company. So I pretty much changed it in my head of I'm going to say we from now on so that I position monetize more as a company and not me as an individual. Now, Ken, you're traveling around, living the dream, working in funky looking t-shirts from your laptop and God knows where, making good money. Why go legit? Why build a team? Why not just keep the profits coming in, put them in your bank account and enjoy your lifestyle? It was a risk and that was a big consideration of mine. However, as I mentioned, I'm very competitive and ambitious. What are you competing with, though? So a lot of people ask me that. What's the number that I want to get to? And there isn't one. For me, it's about getting to the next level, about pushing the envelope. There was this episode we did a few weeks ago with Justin Jackson, where he said, you know, if you look under the hood of these startup stories, there's always like a secret. Because in retrospect, it's so easy to paint this story. It's like, I found my anchor client. I did this great job. I doubled it. I hired. I followed the process. I just read a few good books about management and everything came together. And now I'm this very successful entrepreneur. What I want to do is try to press you to, are there secrets to your story when you look back on it? The first one that comes to mind is that first client. So I got incredibly lucky that that was our first client. It was really big and they were only running Google AdSense. So it was like this perfect scenario for dramatic ad revenue increases. And I was incredibly lucky 
that they were an old employer. I had, you know, still a good relationship. It was a warm lead. And my old boss was very open to this. She was the best boss I've ever had. And it's because her open-mindedness that she was willing to take a risk on me. And it worked out really well for the company, for her, and to build Monetize more. Because now you're in this community of entrepreneurs, what are some things that are true about that community and about the way people behave that might be non-obvious to people that aren't inside of it? When I went to the first Dynamite Circle event, this was 2015. So Dynamite Circle, Bangkok, the biggest event that Dynamite Circle has. I was only part of the Dynamite Circle for like maybe two, three months before that. I haven't met these nomad entrepreneurs before. I was like this weirdo who has this remote business. And anytime I talk to you know a normal person, they'd be like, well, I've never heard of that. That's super weird. Like, how do you live like that? But then all of a sudden, I'm in the, in the same room with all these people that have these businesses and they love traveling and they can live wherever they want in the world. And they have these remote team members. And it, that was really cool. And one thing that kind of struck me was they don't ask where you're, where you're from. They ask where you're based. And that was the kind of the first like, whoa, talk about a perspective shift. It really matters where you are now and what type of experience you're having. It's kind of more in the now and more about where you are and where you're going. And I thought that was really cool. It was very different than the perspectives that you'd have of, you know, regular Joe on the street. What do your old friends make of what you're up to? Well, it's a lot different what their perspective was at the beginning because they thought it was just like kind of crazy. But then they saw me, you know, continue to do it over the years. And they're just like, wow, this is really impressive. And they're very encouraging. And I've actually had a lot of friends that have been inspired by it to the point that they started their own businesses. And they decided to even have their own remote team. So I've hired some of my friends in my company and they live this lifestyle. And then I've had some friends like Ronnie Teja, who started his own e-commerce company. And we used to be roommates and he saw how I was able to live this lifestyle and build a successful company. And he was eventually inspired to start his company. And I was kind of able to help him kind of along the way with, you know, whatever questions he had. I'm really passionate about location and schedule freedom and how empowering it is for people. And it allows people to really take control of their lives and live how they want and even optimize their own lifestyle. So they live their own ideal lifestyle. One of your pieces of business advice, Kian, is to lean into this idea of location independence. So like you said, like, you're not like tacitly offering this. You're actually preaching it to your team. Like this is a core value of what we're up to here at Monetize More. I want to sort of turn the conversation to talk about this issue of recruiting staff. And you use this word poaching. So poaching is when you strategically target a employee of another company to join your company. And why would you do this? You would do this because that person is very talented, has a very specific skill set that would be a good fit for your company. The best talent out there aren't free agents looking for jobs. The best talent out there 
already has a job working for the company and they're usually paid well and are happy with their jobs. Well, how do you do it? It's a lot easier when you're poaching friends. However, when it comes to poaching people that you've never met before, that's where it gets a little more difficult. We were able to utilize the benefits of location and schedule freedom as nuggets to kind of hook them into this type of work lifestyle. Has there ever been downsides to poaching? They definitely come at a higher price, that's for sure. Negotiations a lot tougher, but for the most part, they've worked out really well. Why did you want to share this with the listeners of the show? What did you feel was important about the topic of poaching? Poaching is a really important tactic for getting top-level talent. You know, that's one of the biggest things for ramping up a company is getting the best talent. That is the difference of the market leaders versus, you know, the average companies, the mediocre ones is really the talent. That is the derivative to the success of a company. You need A players, as you guys talk about in the podcast. And in order to get these A players, you got to poach. Unless you get lucky with some free agents that either are A players or they turn into A players, that's a certain way. But to get A players off the bat, a lot of them you got to poach. And location-independent businesses have that competitive advantage of offering location and schedule freedom, which is a novelty to a lot of these people. And after a certain amount of time, some of them get sick of the commutes and the politics and just the regular droll of the office. That's very compelling. Thanks. I appreciate you sharing that. A common ruse for podcast host Kian is to use the podcast call as an opportunity to get free consulting from the people on the other side. So I would like to ask for your advice. One of the challenges that we're having at Dynamite Jobs is figuring out what questions or information is important to know about a candidate or a company in order to figure out whether or not they're going to be an effective remote worker for that company. So my question to you is, what information do you feel like is a need to know when you're evaluating potential staff members for Monetize More? Remote experience is really important. That one's pretty obvious. No, it's not. It's not obvious at all. Okay. Why is that obvious? I mean, for example, if I'm going to poach somebody from a company using location independence, then it probably follows that they don't have remote experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we have done that too. A lot of the team members that we poached are developers, because that's where it's really tough to get top talent. That's where it kind of comes into play. We have found a correlation between remote experience and those who do well with the company and are more long-term versus some that just couldn't cut it. So that's a consideration that we kind of learned. So say that someone does not have remote experience. Is there other information that you could use to mitigate the risk? Yep. So what would be the next order question if they say, no, I do not have remote experience, and you're like, oh, dang, this person seems like a good fit? Valuing remote working is really important. Valuing location freedom and schedule freedom is a really big one. 
Doesn't everybody value location and schedule freedom? There's some people that they only work well in an office, right? They build off of that in-person interaction with other smart people. Like there's some people that we tried to poach. For example, we tried to poach this one really top-level girl out of Edmonds. And she pretty much told us we got to a point where she's just like, I don't think it's going to work with me working remotely because I get a lot of kind of fire from working in person with other smart people and getting that dynamic where you're kind of going back and forth and kind of giving good ideas and then working off of that idea. Like that kind of in-person dynamic can be really powerful and some people depend on it. Luckily, we didn't hire her and, you know, she was really honest with us and that's kind of really important. So I would say valuing location freedom at a very high level means that you want to work outside of an office and you don't need that in-person interaction with other people. You value kind of the other fruits of location freedom. So what we try to do with our, our interviews is, as we know, a lot of people, they give answers that are that sound good to the employer, right? And it's all about dissecting what are they saying that sounds good to the employer and what are they saying that they genuinely believe. So how do you do that? We have some questions that have worked better for us. One of my favorite interview questions that I ask everybody at the end of an interview, I even ask it in one-on-ones with some of our team members that I've met for the first time, is I give them a hypothetical. Say I were to grant you three promises related to working at Monetize More. What would you want those three promises to be? They're pretty much the things that they value the most, whether it's the autonomy to use certain strategies and tactics that they think will work well. They want the access to resources for self-improvement. Sometimes they want to be promised fair compensation. Sometimes they want to be promised vacation time. Sometimes they want the ability to take time off whenever their kid is sick or, you know, it, it can be very specific it can be very broad. But what we found is the discrepancy between their answers and what they actually believe in, what they actually value is very small. And that is the question that I found to be most successful in terms of getting a true, genuine answer out of them. So in other words, you're finding that that question is hard to game. Are there other questions like that that you have? Other questions? Let's see here. That one's my favorite. Another good one that I do. Because not everybody has remote work experience. But pretty much anybody that we're hiring has worked in university. So I asked them, so when you did your homework, studied for a test at university, where did you work from? You know, they'll say the library, at home, at a cafe. And what I found is the people that say they work from the library and they, they had to work from a library, those are the office workers. But the ones that, you know, they work from home, they work from the cafe, they prefer it, or maybe they like moving around. Those are the people that would value location freedom more. That's crazy. Do you still use your instinct a lot during this process or do you guys feel like you've found a way to put a process in place that's going to get the right people into the company? It's a bit of both. We definitely have a a process, but 
yeah, there's definitely instinct involved. There's instinct involved when you're gauging the how genuine the answers are in terms of their tonality, if they're kind of nervous. You know, you can tell via the video calls, you know, how they're kind of reacting. So instinctually, you know, you definitely need that type of intuition for it. In terms of process, there's like, you know, what interview questions to actually ask. So we've definitely done that. We have some like really solid processes, for example, our developer hiring, where we run them through a culture fit interview. Where do you get the culture fit interview from? So that's something that we developed ourselves. It's for our developers. Our developer recruiter is the one who runs them through the culture fit interview. And for everything outside of the tech team, we have our HR team that runs them through a culture fit interview. And that's their first interview. And we see if they're going to be a good fit for the culture of the company. Are they going to be advocates or are they going to you know, push against it? How would you describe that culture of your company? Well, we have three main pillars. There's reliability, whether somebody does what they say. There's enterprising, whether they act as an intrapreneur within the company. They're resourceful, whether they can think on their feet, think outside of the box. And then there's Kaizen. That's the concept that everything around them can be improved and deserves to be improved. So it's that devotion towards consistent improvement for themselves and the people and processes around them. Sometimes I am tempted to think that this stuff is so high level, you know, that how could it possibly be valuable? You know, you're talking to somebody listening to this show that's got a bunch of shit flying across their desk all day long and they got, they need to hire another person. How could it possibly be important, these three pillars? You know, I just need a warm body to respond to these emails. What's your response to that? For that person that's hiring someone, it could be they're rehiring because that person before didn't work out. And perhaps that person that didn't work out didn't value things like self-improvement or maybe they weren't reliable. That's something that immediately impacts the company. If they don't do what they say, if they're not responsive to their emails, if they keep on missing deadlines, then they most likely aren't going to work out in the company. And especially when you're talking about a remote workforce where no one's looking over your shoulder, if someone's not reliable, then it won't work out. And it's also something that's contagious. If someone can get away with not being reliable, then that's communicating to all the other team members that they can get away with that. So it's completely contagious and it's something that spreads. And maybe it isn't something that is noticeable in day one. The closest thing that is would be reliability. And for that person that is perhaps the business owner that's overworked, has a lot going on and they need to hire someone right now, I would recommend for them to spend some time and look at the three most important pillars. You know, it's really important to kind of stick to those guns and over time, you'll see that the team members will become advocates of those three pillars. That's what creates growth. And that's what creates these team members that work independently. They don't need any type of micromanagement from the business owner. 
which is the original cause of them being super busy and not being able to worry about all these kind of cultural aspects that seem super abstract and doesn't affect the day to day. Kian, two more questions. So from the outside, I think your the optics of your position in life are mind-boggling to a lot of people. So you're young, you're traveling often to very amazing locations, you're running a 100-plus company, there's lots of money involved here, there's lots of success. From the outside, we're seeing all of this. What's something that would surprise some of us if we were to step in? And it's not just you, but about people like you. What's surprising about the reality of living the life that so many people are trying to build for themselves? You know, there is the other side where I just got off of flying for the past 24 hours and, you know, there's this fire or this thing that I need to get done and I haven't slept for 24 hours, but I just got to get it done. You know, if you travel and you work, you can't let that be a hindrance on just getting things done. What is it that would have surprised like your 23-year-old self about being the CEO of a big-ass company that's making a lot of money? The 23-year-old self would never imagine the company to get this big because the reason I started the company in the beginning was to have this lifestyle. It's never been about how much money. The beginning motivation was definitely the lifestyle. And something that I get the most fulfillment from is enabling people in our team to have this location and schedule freedom, like to essentially engineer their ideal lifestyles. Like I see people in our team and how it's changed their lives. All of a sudden with location independence, they can move to that small town where their parents live, or maybe their girlfriend wants to move to, or maybe it's not having to commute two hours each way and have to put their kids on daycare. Now they can raise both their kids and they can have like a solid, like actual solid family type of lifestyle. For example, when one of the people on our team, they decided to have a child just because they worked with Monetize More and they have location schedule freedom. It's kind of a joke. The acronym for our company is M2. And I've met the beautiful little girl. And as a joke, they call her baby M2. This is my hardest question. It's a parting shot to someone on the other side of the earbuds or the speaker who's listening to this, wanting to have location and schedule freedom. They want to do it from a business that they're running. What sort of advice or parting shot might you have for that person? To make that move, to go 100% towards that business, make the jump, because I have a lot of friends who have wanted to be entrepreneurs for the longest time, and they still do, and they talk about it, and they have this little side gig that just kind of just floats, and they never end up making that jump. So I would say, take the leap. A lot of people in the Dynamite Circle have had success going to a place that they can have a more cost-effective lifestyle, like Chiang Mai. You know, they can live on their savings for a long time and give them the amount of time to be able to establish their business so that it's profitable and they can live on it. And I would say, make that jump. For those who, they're reading another book or listening to another podcast and they're kind of just overloading on knowledge, 
just do it. Just go for it. Learn by doing. And you're going to be so much closer to your goal of, you know, financial independence by having your own business, by kind of taking that initial jump. Let this be the last TMBA podcast you listen to, dear listener. Key and Graham, thank you for dropping by the show and sharing your story with us today. Thanks, Dan. I love it. Learn by doing. Go ahead and make the jump. That's what this pod is all about. It can be scary. It can be incredibly exhilarating. It can be one of the more memorable moments in your life is building the business that you're dreaming about building it. And how cool is it that Kean's been able to stick to his guns and stick to that vision of a location independent company, even as he scales up and competes with, quote, real companies. That's what's happening here is that there's not this moment where you grow up, get a legit CEO and put everybody in an office. It doesn't have to be like that. I think what Kean's doing is a canary in the coal mine for the future of business. An enormous thanks to Kean Graham for swinging by the show and sharing his experiences. We'll post the show notes, the links to everything mentioned in today's episode at tropicalmba.com slash Kean Graham, spelled K-E-A-N Graham. That's it for this week. We'll hope you join us next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.